Good to see you guys. My name is Robert. For those of you who are new with us, I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. If you've got your Bibles, um, open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles just like this on the table in the back. Please don't feel strange. Get up and go grab one. They're our gift to you. Take it, keep it. Um, Hopefully we'll help you learn to make use of it. Um, If you go and grab one of these or if you grabbed one on your way in, Acts chapter 1 is on page 778. I'll be using that Bible this morning. Turn there, and uh, while you're going there, I'm going to kind of remind us where we've been and maybe set us up for where we're going. Um, A pastor in in London named Steve Timmis, he said this. He said that we know who we are as Christians when we know where we are within the Bible's story. Did you hear that? We know who we are as Christians when we know where we are within the Bible story. It's that story and our place in it that ultimately defines us. We know who we are as Christians when we know where we are within the Bible story. And it's that story and our place in it that actually ultimately defines us. Last week, we we talked a little bit about some of the questions that we tend to ask God and we tend to ask ourselves about our life. Questions that Though sound good, though asked with the right intention, are often the wrong questions to actually be asking. And because they're the wrong questions, we end up with the wrong answers and we end up getting swept away into a a fog of, of uncertainty. And we live our lives with this nagging uncertainty about who we are and why we're here and and what the point of it all is. And and in fact, we said last week that some of us get so tied up in trying to think how with all that's going on in my life and and all the things that I've been a part of and I've I've experienced in my world, how do I understand how God fits into the story of my life? I'm I'm having a hard time. Is Is he here? What sense do I make of how he fits into this thing? And if we're honest, a lot of us wrestle with that at different points in times in our life. But you know, it's actually the wrong question. It's actually the wrong question. The right, the right question is, is not how does God fit into the story of my life so that I can make sense of it. The right question is how does my life fit into the story that God is playing out in his word? How does my life fit into the larger story of which God is the author? How do I find my story fitting into God's story? And you see, it's not just an issue of semantics. It's not just a, a trick that people who speak for a living use to make you think we've come up with something new. It's not that at all. You see, when we find ourselves focused on questions like, how does God fit into my story? What particular plan and purpose does God have for my life? Instead of figuring out how my life fits into God's particular plan and purpose, do you know who we're making the center of all of our attention and focus? I mean, do you know who is at the center of those questions that we find so much uncertainty being born out of in our life? We are. When we find uh, ourselves caught up in this uncertainty about trying to figure out how God fits into the story of our life, we have made ourselves a central player, a central figure in a story in which we only have a really bit part. And we put ourselves at the center of ourselves. And we're trying to define everything about our life and involving our life and everything about God as we sit at the center and he then circles around us. And it's just the wrong question. It's just the wrong question. You see, from the very beginning, you and I have have found ourselves caught up, swept up into this epic story that's really behind everything, that really describes and defines everything. This epic story of a a good and and gracious and, and sovereign God who in the beginning when there was nothing simply spoke and everything that is came into existence. A good God who spoke and all that is came into existence and it began to orchestrate and operate in this beautiful harmony and rhythm together. Creation just began to flow and began to live and move and have its being in this incredible harmony and rhythm that God had created. And he created you and I in that same rhythm, in that same harmony, relating with him. He created all things that are, including you and I, with the extent purpose that as we found him sufficient and as we found ourselves delighting in who he was and as we found ourselves absolutely satisfied in God and dependent upon God, creation would would bear witness to God's greatness and would glorify God and creation, you and I, would find deep satisfaction in enjoying God. And there's a rhythm that God created in the very beginning that we were caught up in. We were created by God to find God satisfying, to enjoy God. That's why we were created. You know, the old Catechism writers got it right. 
They ask the first question in the Westminster Catechism. Do you know what it is? How many of you have been catechized? Yeah, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Not what is a chief end of man. Not what is a good option for which while we were here. What is the chief end of man? It's a good question to have an answer to. And in searching the scriptures and in humble dependence upon God's teaching of them and revelation to them, they came up with this answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the ends to which we were created. And then throughout history, some some great men like Jonathan Edwards in days past and and Pope John Piper I in, in days present, they made it easier for you and I. You see, what began to happen is you begin to think that we've been swept up into this purpose in in creation and in this great story that God's got played out, that our chief end, the chief end, not a chief end, but the chief end is to glorify God. But then they said, and, and enjoy God forever. And all of a sudden you begin to think, well, wait a minute, I thought there was just one. Do I exist to glorify God or do I exist to enjoy God? Do I exist to to glorify him or be satisfied in him? And, And these men were in their brilliant study of scripture and dependence upon God made it simple for us. And they said, no, no, no. They're not at odds with each other. They're not at odds. The chief end of of man, our chief end, our chief purpose, it's not bifurcated. It's it's one. It's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And John Piper said it most succinctly when he said, God is most glorified in us. God is most glorified through us when we are most satisfied in him. The more and more, in increasing measure, we find our hearts deeply enjoying the person of God. Not just the things that he has done, but who he is. And our hearts get stretched and their capacity to find satisfaction in God enlarges. As that begins to happen, God receives glory through our lives. That's the way that we were created. We were created to find God as satisfying and to enjoy him. And you know what? That lasted for two chapters in the Bible. Two chapters. Then sin entered the picture. As sin was introduced into the world, that harmony and, and that rhythm, that rhythm to life of enjoying God deeply and reflecting his glory and enjoying God and reflecting his glory was broken. As sin was introduced into our life and sin was introduced into the created order, that rhythm that God had created was was broken and all that was right was now twisted and and fractured and and broken. And the story goes on that God did not leave us left to ourselves in the midst of this fractured and, and broken world, a world that was aching to find that rhythm again, a world that was aching to find that harmony again, a world that in and of itself couldn't get back to what sin had so destroyed. God didn't leave us to ourselves in that, but he himself entered into that brokenness, into that fractured world, into the world that we find ourselves in, in his son, Jesus, who lived the life that we were created to live and then died to pay the price for the life that we so choose to live instead. And in that work, God began the process of furthering his story along in redeeming what sin had had broken and redeeming back to himself in a a work to restore that rhythm and restore that harmony. God, through Jesus, began redeeming his creation back to himself so that we could find our delight, we could find the joy, we could find all the things that we were searching for elsewhere that we were created to find in God. We could return back to that rhythm. We could return back to that satisfaction. We could return back to that delight. And in that work, Jesus, Jesus in our place, exhausted all of the wrath of God that was due to us for our failure to find him satisfying. And he began the process of redeeming us back to God. And and here's where we're going to go and what it has to do with Acts. We're caught up in this great story. And if I'm really honest, I, I think that most American churchgoers, that would be you and I. I put myself in this one. We have a tendency to take that story and believe that it stops right there. 
We have a tendency to, to take this great story that we have been caught up into, this great story of what God is doing in his world and creating us to find him satisfying and, and to glorify him through this, and then sin entering into that world and fracturing all that is and, and this chaos that would ensue upon our lives in this fallen world. But then he steps in to begin the process of redeeming back to himself those who were fallen away because of their own sin and rebellion. And we tend to think that when we hear that story and that story collides with our heart and we see the beauty of God in the face of Christ and that rhythm is beginning to be restored as we begin to trust in God for all that we are and all that we need, that the story just stops there. That there's creation and there's a fall, there's a sin, there's an exchange of God's glory for something else. Then there's redemption through Jesus back to being holy and fully satisfied in God and, and done. Like we've got this tendency in the American church to think the story stops with our own personal redemption. The problem is the Bible. The problem with that thought is the Bible itself. It's not me, it's not anybody else, it's not our life, it's not Disney, it's not all the different things that go on in the world. The problem with that thought is the Bible. Because the Bible is going to say the story doesn't stop with our own personal redemption. The story, the story doesn't stop with our own personal reconciliation back to God, back into the rhythm for which we were created. When you stop at the story of redemption, when it terminates on yourself, then what you do, whether you want to or not, you make yourself the central player in the story. And in the end, just like the questions that we talked about last week, when you make yourself the central player of a story in which you only have a bit part, you get all of the answers and understanding wrong. When it comes to God's great story that our lives are a part of, when it comes to God's great story in which we find ourselves swept up into, if you think about it like a sports game, like a, like a Super Bowl or like a World Cup, we're the guys who wash the uniforms after the game. In God's great story, in the story of who God is and what he is doing, our role is like the guy that washes the uniforms after the game. It's just a bit part. It's just a bit part. But when we terminate God's story with our own personal redemption, we make ourselves the object of the story, the center of the story, of which the rest revolves around. We miss the point of what God's doing because the story doesn't actually stop there. To know who we truly are and, and who we're called to be, we have to know our place in the story. And when we stop with our own personal redemption, we get the answer wrong. So here's the thing, the Bible keeps going. The story doesn't just stop at redemption. As God created everything that is to find him satisfying and delightful, as we chose to rebel against that and exchange that dependence and that glory of God for other things, as our lives began to spin out of control in the fracture of this fallen world that God that entered into in himself through his son and began the process of redeeming back to himself that which had been broken, the story keeps going. It goes from, restoration, from redemption to restoration. God's story doesn't just stop on our own personal redemption. It continues on to restoration. You've got God creating all things in this harmony and in this rhythm and everything going like it should and then it breaking and it falling apart and then him redeeming it back to himself and then taking what he has redeemed back to himself and using it for his continued purpose to see all things, all of creation restored to its original purpose and its original glory. God's story continues forward beyond just your personal redemption. And in becoming who we were created to be, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. And finding God increasingly satisfying with all that we are. Learning to enjoy him deeply as we were created to do he begins to then use us, his people, his church, in his continued story of restoration. You see, if we stop the story at our own personal redemption, the church becomes impotent. If we stop God's story of redemption, of restoration at our own personal redemption, the church then becomes impotent and actually loses its place in the story. You miss what God's doing. So there's this rhythm to get this. There's this rhythm 
to which God created us and he created all things. It's like breathing. You know, there's a rhythm to breathing. It's really important that your body keep that rhythm. You breathe in and you breathe out. What would happen if you were to breathe in and not breathe out? I mean, what if we just stop for a second? I told you to take a big, deep breath in and then not exhale. And people would be passing out all over the place and the charismatics would get excited. And <laughs> no, your, your lungs would swell up with carbon monoxide and it would not be good. When we just breathe in, when we just take in, when the story of redemption just terminates in on ourselves and doesn't exhale back out into the purpose for which God created it, things go wrong. And the book of Acts that we're going to be spending our time in is, is going to help us restore that rhythm for which we were created. That God created us to enjoy him deeply, to breathe in and to enjoy him deeply, but then it doesn't end there. It's going to help us focus on that rhythm that we breathe in and enjoy him deeply, then exhale as we engage in his mission fully. That God's purposes were not done at your own personal redemption. And he now has called us, and as we'll see, empowered us to be active participants in his story of restoration. Breathing in and breathing out. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at something in particular in Acts chapter 1 this morning as we help at least try to start setting the stage for this series. Father, thank you this, thank you this morning for the, the privilege of, of coming together as your people. We pray, Father, that we, our hearts would, would increasingly be able to find you delightful and to find joy in you that the rhythm of our life would be restored and, and be complete as, as we would find you deeply satisfying, that we would enjoy you deeply, and then that, that would exhale out in our lives as we would engage in, in your purpose and in your mission and your story for the restoration of all things. And, and Father, we ask for your help this morning by your Spirit as we open up your word that, that you would do what my very weak and, and very feeble words can't do this morning, but that you would bring life to that rhythm that you would bring power to that rhythm, that your Holy Spirit would, would open up hearts to see the truths of, of your purposes for why we are here, why we exist through your word. We ask this morning that you would be glorified and your name would be lifted up. Amen. Acts chapter 1, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read and then we're going to zero in on one particular thing and, and that's going to be a little bit of a rhythm as we go through Acts. Um, there's going to be a lot of narratives in Acts, and so we're going to cover a lot of ground in, in certain weeks, and it's going to seem like we're missing a lot, but we're going to narrow in to certain things in, in different parts of the text for our time in here. So Acts chapter 1, we're, we're going to read from verse 1. Um, it'll be familiar from last week, but it's never a bad thing for you to hear the word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering and by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, 
they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with all of the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. We're going to zero in this morning, with all of that said, into Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this morning, we're going to finish what I said I was going to leave you hanging with last week. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this act in this second piece of the rhythm which God has created, that we enjoy him deeply, and then we exhale as we engage in his mission fully. And we introduced this last week, but we're going to actually unpack it a little bit this week and help make a little more sense of it. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what is the mission that God is calling us to then engage in fully? What is the mission that God is calling us to engage in fully as we enjoy him deeply and we exhale into engaging his mission fully? What is that? And here it is, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, part 1. What is the mission? Really simple. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. We talk a lot about identity around here. We talk a lot about how the gospel rearranges how we understand who we are in light of who God is and what he has done. And one of the ways the gospel reorients our understanding of who we are and and why we're here and what we're called to do in our identity as, as people is understanding this mission. He has called us to be witnesses. Now, I'll be honest, because just be honest. Hearing that makes some of you really twitchy. If you've been in church for a really long time, the church people, it's okay. When we say your mission is to be witnesses, you're starting to get twitchy and your palms are starting to sweat because you're expecting me to pull out another book like we did this Helping You Preach, and you're expecting me to pull out a book saying Helping You Witness. Here is the script by which you are to memorize. Here are the words that you're supposed to know. And here are the addresses that I'm going to give you. And you're going to go knock on every single door on this piece of paper. And you're going to take this script and you're going to deliver this script. And you're getting twitchy because you've done that before. You've woken up to nightmares of racing to a front door and being beaten up by a Mormon on a bike as he beats you to the door. Look, maybe that's just me. (laughs) Let me make it simple, really simple for you. What part of speech, what part of speech is this word witness? What part of speech in this sentence is the word witness? It's a noun. It's a noun. You will be my witnesses. We have taken and added so much baggage to this thing by doing so many semantic gymnastics and turning a noun into a verb. And we've added so much baggage to this thing to the point that you're getting twitchy and remembering the things that you've done all in the name of witnessing. And he said, no, here's your mission. You will be my witness. It's a noun. So what is a witness? Very simple. What is a witness? A witness, it's very simple. A witness is someone who can give an account of something that they have seen, something they have heard, or something that they have experienced. That's all a witness is. And Jesus says, here's your mission. Here it is. I'm calling you to engage in my purposes and in my story that's not terminated on you, that's continuing on to see restoration come to all that has been broken by sin. And here's your part. Here's how I'm calling you in. You will be my witness You will give an account to what you have seen, what you have heard, or what you have experienced about me. That's all it is. Your mission is to be able to give an account for the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life today, yesterday, a week ago, a month ago. It's not that difficult. I mean, the best example of what this, I was trying to find a good example in Scripture to to make it as simple as I could for you, and the best one I could come up with is in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9 is the story of Jesus healing the blind man, right? The man had been born blind. He, He couldn't see. He encounters Jesus, and now he can see. And then what immediately happens to him? He gets accosted by the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees are all over this guy trying to ask him questions about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What did he do? What do you know about him? Trying to get after this. And here's what he said. Here it is. You ready? Here's your role. Here's what he says. This much I know. I was blind, but now I see. This much I know about this man Jesus that you're asking me so much about, that you're so worried about, that you're so threatened by. I I don't know much. I I can't answer all your questions. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a rabbi. I didn't read all the scrolls. I don't know. This much I know. I met Jesus and I was blind. But now I see. That's all it is to be a witness. To be a witness is to testify, to give example of, to give story of, to give account of what you have seen, what you have heard, or what you have experienced. And Jesus said, here, here it is. It's all I'm asking. You will be my witnesses. You will give an account of the difference that it has made, the flesh and blood difference, the day in and day out difference that it makes to you to have encountered the risen Christ. This much I know is all you're to say. You may not be able to answer all the questions. You may not be able to have all the books read. You may not have had all the years learning this and learning that, but if you have, an, if you have experienced the tangible work of the gospel in your life today, yesterday, a week ago, a month ago, God is calling you into his purposes and his mission that you might be witnesses. That's it. Chris Wright, who who wrote one of my favorite books on the book of Acts, he, he said this. He said, all these people in Acts, they're not preachers, but they were all witnesses. And they had something to say about Jesus and the difference that Jesus makes to their life. And where this happens in the world today, the church grows and people come to faith. People can see that it makes a difference to Mr. and Mrs. Ordinary Citizen. And I guarantee you this, they will take notice. We complicate this so much. We make this so hard and and then we disqualify ourselves so quickly and so easily, yet all we are to do is to tell of the difference that Jesus has made and continues to make in our life right now. This is who I was and this is what the power of Jesus has done in response to that. You see something good about my life? You see anything good about my family? You see anything good about me? Let me tell you why. It has nothing to do with anything that I have done. Let me tell you what I know. This is who I was. This is the way we were. This is the way this circumstance was. And this is the difference that Jesus has made. So before we go, let me ask you this before we move on. Does Jesus make a tangible flesh and blood difference in your life? As you sit there and listen to me say this, can you put your finger anywhere where you can say that Jesus has made a flesh and blood tangible difference in your life? I mean, what is your story of of God's grace? Not just the big overarching story. Here's the thing. We we tend to take this and think, okay, now I've got to learn how to give my story. Okay, here's who I was. Great thing to do. We hope in the weeks to come and different times that we have in the morning to help you learn to do that. Here, but it's not just that. It's not just learning how to get the elevator speech in, in 30 seconds and in three minutes and in five minutes and in 10 minutes. It's, it's a process of day in and day out learning to see the evidences of God's grace in the midst of everything that you're in. It's, it's beginning to learn to see that no matter where you are in the difficulties in this circumstance or in the blessing of this relationship in this circumstance, God is present, God is sufficient, and because of the work and the grace of Jesus in your life, It's made a tangible difference in it. Here's the difference that Jesus has made in my life yesterday in relation to talking about my wife. That's what it is to give a witness. And are are you actively able to see the the grace of God at work in your life and all the different aspects of your life? Are, Are you learning to hunt for God's grace and the difference that it makes in how you face the world around you and the circumstances you find yourself in? Do you what kind of witness would you give? to someone who said, I see something really great 
about this aspect of your life or can you help me understand why this is the case in your world? What would your answer be? Would it bear witness to this much you know? So that's, that's the mission. We're going to talk a lot about this in Acts. So I'm just going to, I'm trying to whet your appetite a little bit this morning with things that we're going to look at. That's the mission. That's the purpose. That's God's plan. The problem is we make it difficult. We add baggage to it and we make all kinds of excuses about how we can't do it or why we shouldn't do it. And we're like Moses and God finds somebody else. I stutter. I won't be able to say it. I won't know the right things to say. Isn't someone else better equipped? You know what? I'll just focus on helping other people get better at it. That's what I'll do. Uh, you want me to be your witness? Well, you know what? I'm going to help these people get better at being witnesses because I don't think I'd be a very good one. We find all different ways to excuse this thing in our life that God has called us to be, but here's what we miss. We find ways to disqualify ourselves, but Jesus not only calls us to engage his mission, he gives us all the power that we need to do it. Do you know that? All the ways right now in your mind and in your heart, you've listened to me for the last 10 minutes and figured out all the ways in which you're deficient, all the ways in which you wouldn't be good at it, all the things you're worried that I'm going to ask you to do, all the baggage that you think I'm, I'm, I'm saying with all this stuff that you've had from all of your previous experiences, all the reasons why sounding like being Jesus' witnesses is not a great idea for the mission that God has for his church in this day. This is what you're missing. He not only calls us to do it, but he gives us the power to do it. He gives us the power to do the very thing that he has then called us to do. He says, Here, here's my mission. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. But here's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. You will receive power. You'll receive power. You'll receive strength. You'll receive the ability to do the very thing I'm called you I've called you to do, and here's how you're going to get that power. I'm going to give you the very spirit that raised me from the dead. Here it is. This is what I'm calling you to go do. Very simple. It's God's plan. It's to give an account of what we know of who he is and how he's changed us. But here's what. Just when you think you can't do it, just when you think there's no way that you're going to be able to do that, I'm going to give you the very power, the very strength, the very capacity to do the very thing I'm asking you to do. Jesus does, does not call us to a mission where we rely upon our own strength. He calls us to a mission in which, and very simply, he, he, he loads the dice in our favor. There's no way we can lose. There's no way we can fail. He calls us to a mission not to rely upon our own strength, but then he supplies the power to be the witnesses that he's called us to be. And see, here's the thing. Just like the questions that we tend to get wrong because we put ourselves in the middle. We do the very same thing with this. Happens up here all the time. I'll, I'll use my own personal example. So I do this Sunday after Sunday. I pray, I study, I think about you, I pray about you, I study, I write, and I get up to speak a, a message from God's word that by my prayer, God would use to encourage you, equip you, correct you, empower you, to do the very thing that God has called you to do. But here's the thing. For a long time, Sunday night would come and I'd get in the shower and I'd think of all the things I should have said. All the ways I could have said something else. Like how come I couldn't think of that when I was standing there? I mean, if you're new with us, I walk around a lot. They've slowed me down with the pulpit. So I don't always have everything right in front of me. But I'll get in the shower and think, how come I couldn't think of that? I mean, why am I standing in the shower now and can think about saying it that way. Oh my goodness, they didn't hear me say that. They're going to miss the whole point. Now, I should have said this. I could have done this. I could have changed this. Why did I say that? And all of a sudden, I tried to lay down in bed and I couldn't go to sleep. There's all of a sudden the capacity for you to, to see the beauty of the gospel, to hear what God is, is saying to his people through his word was all of a sudden stunted because I didn't say it the way I thought I was supposed to say it. And what was happening was, I was taking my purpose and the, and, the, and the role in which God has called me to play and, and his mission to move forward in this, and I'm doing it in my own capacity and my own strength. The power with which I would begin to think that this part of our time together had in your life was totally due to my ability to make it work. How well I could do it, how well I could say it, how well I could engage, how well I could order it, how well I could formulate it, how well I could tie all these things together. And when I would hear things in my mind or think of things that I could have done differently, all of a sudden I thought it was going to be ineffective and unfruitful for you. 
I had taken the mission that God had called us into and my role in it, and I had approached it in my own strength and in my own capacity, and I had limited the effectiveness and the power, not by the power with which God supplies, but by the power and the strength which I could supply to the thing I was doing. And you do the same thing. When you sit there and hear this very simple thing that God has, has called us in his story to, to be his witnesses to who he is and what he has done and the simple difference that that has made in our lives in a myriad of ways and you feel like you can't do it and I'm not going to be able to do it and I'm scared to do this and, and what if somebody asks me so I, all the things you get in your mind, you forget the, the power to do the very thing that you are called to do is made perfect in that very weakness that you're so afraid of. Anytime you begin to do that very thing that you're called to do with a security and how well you can do it, you've just truncated the power that's possible in it. God said, my, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So I'll boast all the more, Paul said, in my weakness. For when I'm weak, then he is strong. And so all of a sudden, as I began to really wrestle with that in my own arrogance, in my own dependency upon my own capacity to do things, I began to sleep better. I began to see that as I trusted God to do with his own word what God had promised that he would do and it would never return void, it wasn't limited by how well I could do it. And so while I get in the shower now at night and think of all the ways I could have done things differently, it doesn't bother me. Because the power to see a difference made through this aspect of our time together isn't limited to how well I can do it, it's limited to the power of God. <laughs> and that power is infinite and unlimited. And he could take very broken words, very weak words, oftentimes very unorganized and rabbit trail-like words. And by his spirit and his power for his purposes, he can do with those things in your life what, you, what I never thought he could. Same thing holds true for you. The same thing holds true for you and the mission that God has called us to as his people to be his witnesses. Now, with that being said, before we get too close to the end here, as we go through the book of Acts, we talk often about the power that God has given his people to be the very thing that he has called us to be. I pick on the charismatic folk a lot. I'm charismatic. I pick on it. It's my team. Famous phrase, charismatic with the seatbelt, though. Charismatic folk get really excited about Acts. Get really excited about it. The purpose for which this book of the Bible finds its place and God's story gets twisted. It's all of a sudden about power and miracles and all the great things that, that God has done and, and, and oftentimes continues to do through his people, but that's not the point. I don't need more power in my life to, I don't know, pray in tongues. I don't need more power to get alone in my life to do something by myself. The power that God has promised in Acts chapter one, verse eight the power that God has promised to his people and to his church is to be witnesses to who he is and the difference that he has made in their life. That's the power that God has promised his people. It's a power not to get alone to, to do a particular thing or express a particular gift. It's a power that I need to walk across the street and, and engage in an everyday reality in an everyday life with my neighbor who's the head of education for the Unitarian Churches of Central Virginia. <laughs> it's the power to to be a witness in my life to that person who, who desperately needs to understand the difference that Jesus makes in the midst of all those different ideas and philosophies. It's the power to, to be a witness. That's the power that God has promised in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And the beautiful thing about that, and I want you to take this away from all of that, and we'll see it as we go through Acts, is I would hope that understanding that would help you see that Again, it's not about you and I. It's not about what we get and, and what we can do. We're, we're not even central in that promise of, of power and strength, but that very promise should then return our eyes and return our hearts to Jesus, the one who is giving us the very power to fulfill the very work that he has called us to do. The real hero, even in this, even in this mission, is Jesus. Just as we said last week in the book of Acts, it's the continued story of what Jesus has done and continues to do as he sits and rules and reigns right now. It's the contemporary Jesus still at work in this world and in his life. And so when we talk about this mission and we talk about this power, 
My prayer is that it will continue to turn our gaze back to him who is still the center of the story, still the hero and the empower in the story. And so he's called us to his mission. Let me, we'll, we'll, we'll close it up this way. He, he's called us to his mission. He's empowered us to do the very thing he's called us to do. And the last thing he, he does is he gives them the scope. This is what I've called you to do. Here's how I'm gonna empower you to do it. This is just how broad this mission goes. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, all of Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You can actually use that outline to read the book of Acts. You can actually follow Luke's story of how that promise of Jesus is being fulfilled through the church in the book of Acts. You'll read about the gospel going forward in all of Jerusalem and how God has to break it up to get it out to the places he called it to be. And then you'll see the gospel going through all of Judea and all of Samaria to then the ends of the earth where we find ourselves right now in the process of God's continued story of restoration. That people from all tribes, tongues, and nations would be represented before his throne in all of eternity. The mission to see the gospel and the story of Jesus taken to the ends of the earth. But as we say that, be honest with this. Let's be honest. We're going to read a lot about this as we go through Acts. When we talk about the extent of the mission that God has called his people into. Some of us will get excited about the fact that he's called us. Lots of us will get excited about the fact that he has empowered us to do what he's called us to do. And then we'll take an honest assessment of the scope with which he's, he's called us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if we're honest, some of us would, would rather take that map and, and, and cut it up a little bit. And we'd rather say, you know what? My, my heart, my, my heart, is for all those people over there. All the people that I never have to see, all the people that I never have to actually look in their eyes, all the people that I never have to actually engage with, all those people in Timbuktu and in tribes and tongues and nations yet known on the maps, my heart is for them. When you've taken the map, the scope of the mission, and for your own reasons, we'll pick on later, You've decided to trim it to fit your own desires. And others have, have well, be honest, you'll come and you'll say, okay, this is the scope of the mission. My heart, ah, my heart's for this city. My heart is for this place, this city where God has us. This, this is my heart while countless hundreds of millions around the world will die and find themselves in a Christless eternity. And your heart is satisfied with less than half of 1% of God's heart. Is that what you're actually saying? Because he said his heart is for every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth, and that we are to join him in his process of restoration to be his witnesses, not only here, not only there, but to the ends of the earth. Are you saying that your heart is less than half of 1% or a quarter of 1% of God's heart. I don't think that's what you would say when I would phrase it to you that way, but is that practically what we say when we limit the scope of our own heart to some aspect of God's? He said, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses from here to there and to the ends of the earth. And while it's a neat strategy, to say this is my Jerusalem and this is my Judea and this is my Samaria. and I don't know how you say this is your end of the earth. I don't know, that breaks down right there. Oh, that's a neat strategy and it, it, it makes for good teaching. It's not what Luke is saying here. We find ourselves now swept up into God's story, extending beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We are now in the ends of the earth. We are now in the ends of the earth. We are the extent to which God's heart is going forward. And he has called us to have the same heart for his creation that he has. And so as we read through Acts, I, I want you to watch and I want you to take note of how the gospel begins to take root in a place and, and, and in a people 
And the people begin to increasingly enjoy God as the gospel collides with their soul and they begin to increasingly enjoy who God is and and what he has done. And I want you to see how they've breathed that in and how it naturally continues to just exhale out and bears fruit. That it doesn't just terminate in on them and on their place, but as the gospel takes root and begins to bear fruit in their life, it begins to go out and it begins to go forward. And the very thing that God has said will happen continues to happen. And he becomes faithful and continues to be faithful to his promises and his purposes. And I want you to see that because I want you to ask yourself, I want us to ask ourselves, as we see that take place in Acts as we go through this, will we be a people who, who emulate their example in the way that we pray, in the way that we give, in the way that we engage God's mission? Will we be faithful here in Richmond, but still with an eye on the rest of the world? You know, this is something I ask myself, and I'll ask you. I mean, are, are you yet a person who is reading the paper in the morning or, or watching the news in, in the morning with an eye towards how you can be praying for those people in those places? Are you praying for those cities, praying for those nations, praying for those leaders? Are you using your time when those kinds of pieces of information to stir your heart for God's purposes in his world and in his creation? Are you yet seeing your life as caught up into his purposes and his story? Are you seeing yet how your story finds its place in his story? His story of continued redemption but restoration of all things so that even as something as simple as the news comes in front of you, it it stirs your heart because you find yourself caught up in in his story with his heart for these places. Are you you there yet? My prayer is that the book of Acts will help us get there. It will help us recalibrate our hearts and recalibrate our our purposes, recalibrate our intentions and and our passions. I pray that as we we go through the book of Acts, God will will work a depth into our heart, not only for Richmond, but for the rest of the world. I believe that God is continuing, that his purposes have not failed, his plans have not changed, his mission has not switched, and his passion and his power has not grown weak. But it is still the same as it was then, it is today, and it will be tomorrow. And he has called us to be his people. And he has called us to be his witnesses, not only here, but to the ends of the earth. And, and as we close, let me, let me close with this. He gives us the mission that he calls us to engage in. He promises us the power that we need to do the thing he's called us to do. And then he's given us a picture, a really brief picture in this one place to the extent to which he is calling us to be those witnesses. But the best thing about this verse and the best thing about this section in Acts 1 as it relates to this, do you know what else he did? What he did implicitly for these guys? He gave them a guarantee. He gave them a guarantee that the very thing that he was calling them to do and said would happen will actually happen. You see, this mission is not the wishful thinking of a crucified zealot. This mission is the promised purpose and plan of the ascended Savior. For all the missions that we come up with in our life, all the books we get about how to write mission statements for our our life and our company and our our church and our vision and mission and all those things that we do, the one thing that's different about this one is that it's guaranteed to actually succeed. No matter how well you write all those other things, you have no guarantee they will actually come to pass. But this mission, this purpose, this plan, this promise is guaranteed to come to pass because it's the promise of the ascended Savior. As Jesus rules and reigns right now at the right hand of God the Father, this is his promise and this is his plan and you can bank on it. You could actually take all those other books about how to come up with purpose and mission and plan and put them on the shelf and begin to ask God how to understand how your life right now fits into his continued purpose and mission because you can guarantee that when that begins to happen in your heart and in your life, your purpose and your plan is guaranteed to succeed because it's his. God is actively restoring, actively restoring. The, the rhythm, 
the rhythm of the life that we were created to live. The rhythm of our hearts deeply, deeply enjoying God. Breathing in the reality of who God is and, and what he has done and the difference that that has made. And then exhaling out as we engage in his mission to be his people to his world. As we join God in his story of restoration, God so graciously calls us into that thing and he is restoring that rhythm. And here's the thing I want you to to walk away with. That mission is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. And he calls us and he empowers us to join him in it. Our story, your story, your purpose, your mission, whatever words you choose to attach to that thing is all wrapped up in his. And there is no better or more secure place to find that thing. There isn't. Let me pray for us. If I'm honest, Father, I, I, think, I think sometimes I, I wish that the story of redemption terminated on me. I, I wish that that process of enjoying you deeply is all that there was. I just wish it, it, in my own selfishness and, and in my own arrogance and in my own pride, I, I wish that it just terminated there. But Lord, I, I want that rhythm to be restored. Lord, I want to breathe you in deeply. I want to enjoy you deeply, God. But then, Lord, let that compel me. Let that compel us then outward to engage your mission fully with confidence that is not in our own strength we do what we do, but that you've empowered us to be the very people that you've called us to be, to do the very things that you've called us to do, and then guaranteed that as we move forward in obedience and, and trust and satisfaction in you, your purposes and mission will go forward. No fear of failure. No fear of failure. This is your unstoppable plan, your unstoppable purpose. Help us, Father, as we go through this book. Help us to have the heart that you have for your people. Recalibrate our hearts. Restore the rhythm that sin broke. Where we want to be your people in this place, dependent upon your word and your grace, living our lives for your purpose and your mission and your world. That's who we want to be. Lord, help us to wake up with that desire. Galvanize that in our hearts. We ask that this would be not so that we would simply have security, not so that we wouldn't drift into uncertainty about who we are and what we do. No, so that as that continues in our lives, you would receive glory. You would receive glory as your people, your witnesses. We're able with confidence to say, this much I know. <laughs> I once was wretched, <laughs> I once was so bent in on myself and for my own purposes. <laughs> this much I know. But I met you. And you have transformed me. Anything you see good in me, <laughs> it's all at your work. Amen.